This episode was recorded on Wadarung country. This country covers 10,000 square kilometres on the western side of Melbourne, including the cities of Geelong and Ballarat. Wadarung families have looked after and cared for this country for over a thousand generations and are still caring for it this very day. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The fact that Wadarung people and culture have managed to survive and thrive demonstrates enormous strength, resilience and adaptability. Welcome to Weekend Birder. I'm Kirsty Costa. And I'm chuffed that Dr. Kylie Soans, one of my favourite science communicators, is joining us today. As a leading urban ecologist, Kylie is curious about how we can make cities better places for birds and for wildlife. And today, she has some really cool and innovative examples to share with you. But first, as with all Weekend Birder guests, let's find out a bit more about Kylie. When I hear other conservation scientists talk about, you know, how they got into wildlife or birding or anything like that, they always have some wonderful story about this, you know, property that their parents lived on or some richly wild backyard. And I don't really have any of that. I had a pretty urban upbringing until my teens where the most birds that I would see would you know, be the neighbours homing pigeons, you know, flying into the yard and tormenting my dog. But the most times that I really started to notice birds was looking out the window on the drive up to see my grandparents. And, you know, if you live in Victoria or probably anywhere rural in Australia, you'll know that roadsides are kind of this magical place where all of these trees and shrubs and things have been left behind to actually live their lives out. And that's where you'd see these these incredible birds like the um, spinifex pigeons sitting on the power lines and those sorts of things. So my birding interest started pretty humbly. Like I was always excited just to see a magpie, to be honest. And then it's only as I've gone down this this road into working in, in wildlife conservation that I've started to be able to really appreciate birds. I started off as a, as a mammologist, so like don't kick me off the podcast. You know, even out doing my field work, the most interesting thing to me was watching the behavior of birds, you know, the colors and the noises are all very fantastic. But seeing the, you know, a bunch of grey crown babblers just going about their business being busy or, you know, fairy wrens, they have this own little world of busyness that's just incredibly captivating. And that's sort of how I've come more and more to the world with birds. Kylie is an urban ecologist who works in wildlife conservation. So that means I like to understand what plants and animals need to survive and what I can do to help them survive better and not go extinct. And I do that in our cities and towns. So I'm all about trying to make sure that there's space for nature and wildlife in cities and towns and that cities and towns can be places where people can still enjoy nature. So when I was growing up, if you wanted to see nature or get in touch with nature, you you went on a holiday somewhere or you went on a drive out to the bush. What I try to do now is make sure that you don't have to go for a three-hour drive to get in touch with Australia's wonderful wildlife. You can see that in your own neighbourhoods. So I work with local councils and community groups and try and help them find ways that they can help nature in their local area. In this series of Weekend Birder, endangered birds like the orange-bellied parrot keep getting mentioned. Kylie is going to explain how scientists work out which of Australia's animals and birds need extra protection. When you think about it and step back, it's quite confusing. Even as someone who works in the sector, you know, you might use threatened and endangered interchangeably. 
threatened species is really a broad catch-all term that we use to refer to any species that is at higher risk of extinction than your average species. And so there are three main categories that we work with. There's critically endangered, which means you're in super duper struggle street, endangered and vulnerable. And anything in those categories is referred to as a threatened species. In Australia, we have about 150 threatened bird species on our national list, which is quite a staggering amount when you think about it. And the way that species get on that list is there's a set of criteria that we follow. It either has a population decline, so the number of birds is on the way down. The area it lives in might be in decline, so there's not as much space for it as there used to be, and we think that that's going to be a problem for it being able to persist in the long term. It might have a really, really small population already, so it's already experienced that big decline, and now there's just a handful of animals left, and we know we really need to act to look after them. Or it might only live in a very small area. We call these kind of restricted area species where there's just one or two really, really small patches that it can survive in. And if we lose those, we're going to lose the species. So if it meets any of those criteria, it usually goes onto the threatened species list. And then it will get rated as either being vulnerable, endangered or critically endangered, depending on how severe that risk is. Kylie says that we often think about birds that have got a threatened species status as being far away from humans in remote areas. But the truth is that many of them are living in our cities and towns. Some research that we've been building on is this idea that about 30% of Australia's threatened species can be found in urban environments. And we think that amounts to in the order of 300 to 400 um, plants and animal species that can be found in our cities and towns. And the way we did that was we looked at the maps of where these species lived and we looked at the maps of how far or how big these urban areas were for about 99 cities and towns across Australia. And this was any city or town with a human population of more than 10,000 people. So, you know, from your major cities right down to uh, small areas like Torquay, where I live. And that's how we found that level of overlap, that oh, actually lots of our threatened species are living right amongst us. And that means that we can do something in our own neighbourhoods to look after these species just as much as you can out in the wild. One of my all-time favourite threatened species to see in cities is over in Perth, where they have these beautiful big black cockatoos, Carnaby's cockatoo and Bordens. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it. I've only ever seen it written down. Um, but they have this amazing black cockatoo species that live right in amongst the centre of Perth. And you can often see them foraging in pines in the local park or, or on roadsides. And when I was there a few years ago, it just kind of blew my mind that such an iconic and threatened species is something that people see every day there. Um, it, was, it was really, really fascinating. Other ones that I've seen recently are the Brolga, which is this iconic and super exotic looking Australian bird with you know, this elegant grey neck and its beautiful red mask and it's famous for its dancing. And I saw it just out the back of Geelong in a you know, farmer's paddock in an area that's about to be developed. Just a flock of six of them hanging out and I had no one in the car with me that I could like shake and point to like, there is a brolga over there. That is incredible. But I think that's what I... I really enjoy the most now about birds in urban environments is once you start to pay attention how surprising these sightings can be, 
it really hit home for me once we were um, coming back from a, a long trip and we stopped at a KFC in um, in Corio at the back of Geelong. And I heard a noise in a, the tree that I'd never really heard before. I was like, oh, go have a look at what that is. And that's where I saw my first purple crowned lorikeets. This incredibly beautiful, amazing purple colorings and and it was the biggest flock I've ever seen, just sort of nattering away in the trees behind a dumpster, behind a KFC in Corio. If you showed people a picture of a purple crowned lorikeet, that is not the scene that they are expecting to surround this bird, but they're the kinds of interactions that we can have in, in cities and towns. I've also had an urban encounter with a purple crowned lorikeet. It was a hot summer's day and I was sitting on a picnic rug near a wetland in Royal Park, which is in Melbourne's CBD. I heard an unusual lorikeet sound and looked up to see two purple crown lorikeets hanging out, a lifer in the centre of Melbourne. The purple crown lorikeet lives in the southern part of Australia and the bottom of Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria. If there are lots of eucalyptus blossoms in the area, it can also pop up in places that it hasn't visited for a while. This lorikeet does indeed have a purple crown of feathers on its head. You'll also see yellow spots on its cheeks, green-blue feathers on its breast and quite a bit of red under its wings. We've learned from Weekend Birder guests that birdwatching is as much about listening as it is about seeing. The call of the purple crown lorikeet isn't as metallic sounding as the little lorikeet, and it isn't as screechy as the rainbow lorikeet. Have a listen to its call. You can find out more about Australian lorikeets in Weekend Birder episode 38. Kylie is fascinated about how humans and birds share urban spaces. She keeps an eye on the news and the latest research to see what is happening in our cities and towns. Some of the ones, you'll see them in the media quite often as well, where people are shocked and taken back by wildlife entering their their territory. And my favourite one involving a threatened species was a cassowary in Cairns that just wandered through the kitchen of these people's house. They're preparing dinner and it's a hot day, so they leave the windows and doors open normally. And then they turn around from the bench top and there's a cassowary just walking through their living room. And it's a cassowary and they're very smart people. So they ducked for cover and just waited for it to make its way out. They nicknamed it Peanut for some reason. That's a kind of interaction that is so incredibly rare. It's a species that most people don't see on the daily, but... There you go, a cassowary wandering through someone's kitchen, I think. I can't tell if I would really like for that to happen or (laughs) if I would simply find it too frightening. Another one in Perth, I saw my first rainbow bee eater when I was just um, riding through Kings Park. And the only reason I noticed it is because this strange shape just seemed to fly into the ground and then disappear. And I couldn't figure out what had happened. And then sure enough, right next to the edge of the road on a sandy embankment, there's a rainbow bee eater burrow. Um, and I sat there for five minutes and sure enough, two rainbow bee eaters were going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards to what was obviously a very active nest. And I would have thought that to see rainbow bee eaters, I had to travel you know, out into the middle of the desert and then yeah, just pedaling through Kings Park and, and there you go. So many people must drive past that burrow every single day and not know it's there. So there's, there's so many great observations for the taking if you just look around. There are many ways that we can improve our urban gardens, green spaces and waterways to help birds to thrive. In episode 35, Tom Hunt gave us his top gardening tips and you can also find advice in the how-to section of the Weekend Better website. Individual actions for birds is really important and I think that we've also reached a moment where we need to work together to be really, really innovative, especially to help the survival of threatened species. 
Kylie has some great project examples of how humans are collectively using their innovation to help our urban birds. I am more and more excited by how creative people are being to create habitats in urban environments. You know, we know a lot about trying to enhance existing green spaces. We're often good at projecting or we try to be good at protecting, but making those new spaces and those new resources available to wildlife is is really important because making the existing space slightly better and protecting it isn't going to be enough if we want to have real conservation gain. Yeah, I, I get really excited when people are like, how can we make more? How can we fit more in? And, you know, one of the projects I'm involved in at the moment is the floating wetlands trial on the Biraram Yarra River. And so that's a really great example of collaboration between um, councils at the City of Melbourne with the university researchers at the University of Melbourne and the ecologists that construct these floating wetlands to try and get some conservation gains back in the city. So a floating wetland, if you haven't heard of it, is basically, it's like a floating natural raft or pontoon that goes out onto the water. It's a wetland because the plants that we put in that raft, their roots actually extend down into the water column. So it becomes part of the system rather than a floating garden with a pot plant on it. They're actually part of that that waterway. And in some water bodies, it can actually be used to clean the waterways. It cleans up sediment ponds. It's really good at keeping lakes nice and clean and, and taking heavy metals out of the water. But what we're looking at in the river here is how can we use these floating wetlands to provide habitat resources, particularly to bird life. So we put perches on them. We've planted them out with lovely plants, obviously. There are ramps to allow um, you know, ducks and their ducklings to get on to the, the space from the waterway, which is really important in city rivers because if you walk down a city river, you'll notice that the river edge is quite straight and harsh and concrete Um, and in contrast sometimes the buildings next to it will be uh, wavy but the river itself is is straight and concrete so it can be really hard for wildlife to you know connect the land to the water there and that that is a big toll on our wading birds so these floating wetlands kind of provide a refuge in what's otherwise a pretty stark urban environment. We installed these floating wetlands in December and then they've been sort of moved around to their final locations in the month since. But it's been less than a year and we've already had some really amazing observations of of wildlife and bird life using them. So I work with uh, Jacinta Humphrey on this and she's been out doing wildlife surveys and she saw an Australasian data drag this simply enormous fish out of the river, a fish I would not have expected to see in the middle of the city and have this, you know, huge fight on the side of the wetlands trying to swallow this fish that was clearly, clearly too big for a date. And then it just abandoned it and had to go off and, and find food elsewhere. We now have two pairs of swans that have built nests on different wetlands. We're really looking forward to seeing more cygnets in the, the next couple of weeks. And that just, it really hits home how how valuable these these resources are in the city and how needed they were by the wildlife nearby. My all-time sort of ambition for these floating wetlands would be if we can get a kingfisher down in the city to, you know, to use the perch and, and be seen by people, um, I think that would just be the, the icing on the cake for me because I think this is a trial. It's very small scale. There's just a few few wetlands around in what's a very big river in a very big city. But something that they're doing um, that we, we hoped that they would do is it's sort of 
it's a platform, like a literal platform for people to see wildlife in the city. You know, these are birds that they probably wouldn't notice as they're making their commute. But now that they're on these these beautiful green floating wetlands using the perches, even the, the little cormorants on the perches, it's amazing how much more beautiful a bird like that looks when it's not, you know, pooing all down the side of someone's boat and being shooed off into the, the concrete or the litter traps that they, they normally have to perch on. So it's a really great way of inviting people to actually notice the nature in their neighbourhoods. Such a cool project, which is really easy to see from the banks of the river. I'll share Carly's video of the floating wetlands on social media if you want to see what it looks like and where to find it. And you can hear Jacinta Humphrey talk more about her work in episode 24. Carly has another urban bird project to tell you about. I'm actually currently collaborating with some researchers in the School of Design and Architecture, and I have a fantastic PhD student, Dan Parker. And what he's trying to do is is tackle some tricky problems in urban bird conservation, particularly around powerful owls. So, you know, it's Australia's largest owl. It's this enormous bird that requires an enormous hollow for nesting. But as most of you are probably aware, large hollow-bearing trees are a pretty scarce resource in cities and ones that are large enough to house Australia's largest bird are even scarcer. We know that powerful owls haven't had a great amount of success in nesting boxes and it's also really tricky to build a nesting box big enough for a powerful owl in the city because it has to be the traditional means of building a nesting box. pretty big, it's pretty heavy and finding a tree that's big enough to put it in safely where it's not going to crash to the ground on unsuspecting pedestrians. All of those things kind of add up to make it kind of a tricky exercise to add artificial hollows to cities for for powerful owls. What Dan has done as an architect and designer is try and look at some of the, the tools and techniques that they have in their discipline and bring them over into wildlife conservation. So they've used uh, a laser scanning to scan existing natural powerful owl hollows to get a bit of a sense of what it actually looks like. What are the different elements that make the perfect powerful owl hollow? And then they can use their um, their computing and their automated technology to try and recraft that, a much more natural shape of a hollow that has all of those different bits and pieces and build it using you know 3D printed wood and, and hempcrete and all of these materials that I as an ecologist have never, never heard of before to try and craft something that suits the powerful owls, actually moulds specifically to the tree branches that you want to fit it in so it doesn't need to be nailed in or have any heavy hooks or anything like that and hopefully is a much better and safer fit for an urban environment. So they're trying to explore this idea of like, can we be better at doing this in a way that's not only better for the species that we're targeting, but also better for the trees that we're putting them on and better for the people that are going to be nearby. So they've trialled these um, 3D printed bespoke Grand Designs powerful owl houses um, in a few sites across Melbourne at the moment. And we're seeing them used by things like ringtail possums and galahs and lorikeets. And hopefully we can get a few more installed to see if we can start attracting powerful owls and, and evaluate the success in nesting. That's amazing. In the show notes, I'll put a link to the website so you can see what the 3D printed nest box design looks like. We are big fans of powerful owls here at Weekend Birder HQ, and you can hear more about them with Nick Bradsworth all the way back in episode 10. These types of projects aren't just happening in Australia. They're happening around the world as people become more aware of the importance of urban birds. 
In New Zealand, researchers have found that green roofs help birds travel safely through the cities. Those are the roofs that are planted out with grass and small plants. In England, Arundunkatan has designed bricks that can be added to a wall to provide a nesting place for sparrows. Send me an email or drop me a message on social media if you find other examples. To finish off the episode, Kylie wants to tell us about her new binoculars, which she is very excited about using. I got my first pair of binoculars uh, when I started my first year of undergraduate university. And I didn't, they were from my, my parents. They got me a pair of binoculars and a bird watching book. And I've had those two items for you know, 10, 15 years. And I always just thought, yep, these are great. Then I got a, a new pair of binoculars and realized that you can actually see individual feathers on a bird. Um, it, it's, it was the equivalent of going from looking through like two cardboard toilet tubes as pretend binoculars to actually having proper ones. And I think I am 100% converted into the need for a good pair of binoculars. I the other day watched a welcome swallow pick up individual clumps of mud from the side of a puddle and carry them over to the nest that they were building. And you could see, you know, every every layer that they'd put on to that nest. And I could have watched it for 45 minutes using this um, this new pair. And I'm a pretty novice bird watcher, hence the, the lack of good binoculars. But I'm definitely coming around now that I can actually see what other people are looking at this whole time. Ah, the joy of a new pair of binoculars. There are thousands of people listening to this episode right now who totally get it, Kylie. May you be very happy together. I want to thank Kylie for coming on the pod and sharing some of the awesome work that her and her team are doing in our urban environments. Links to Kylie's social media accounts can be found in the show notes. And again, I'd like to thank Mark Anderson for continuing to gift us his birding recordings. So very generous of him. In the next episode, artist and illustrator Bridget Farmer is back on the pod to talk about beach birds. Speak to you then.